Bless God. If you have your Bibles, would you turn to Colossians chapter 1 as we continue our study of the book of Colossians. We will read 15 to 23. I did comment on 15 to 20 last week. I will be commenting specifically on 21, 22, and 23 today. But I'd like to start in verse 15. Paul says about Christ that he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's pray. Father, we just love you, Lord God, and we just pray that you breathe upon the text. Open up our heart, open up our mind, remove the distractions so we can enter into your inspired word, Father God. Give us clarity and give us power to articulate uh, what Paul is speaking to and how it's still relevant for us today, Father God. For the word of God is never not relevant. The Christian, our soul thirst for this word, Father God. We need what we read today living amongst us, Father God. Our life cannot do without the truth of what Paul is saying here today. There is something missing in our life if we don't grasp the magnitude of grace that we just read, Father God. Our souls are crying for this living water of your word. Come and wash us, we ask. Come and encourage us and enable us and edify us, Father God, to see the beauty of the blood of Christ. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. As uh, well, Let me get my notes up here. As we spoke on verses 15 to 20 last week, we spoke of Christ's supremacy over God's creation. Those five verses speak of Christ's ruling supremacy over all things. And there's two creations to God. I hope you know that. There is creation natural as we know it. And there's creation supernatural. And that's being born again. Being disciples of Christ. Being regenerated. Converted sinners. It's called the body. It's called his church. We are the new creation in Christ. And as much emphasis and as detail that God gave to creation account in Genesis 1 and 2, he gives that much more in Christ and the new creation. We spoke of his supremacy over God's creation by establishing first his role, as Paul did, as its creator and the one for everything that was created exists for. Whether it's visible or invisible, whether things on earth or things in heaven, they exist for Christ. And they somehow go to serve redemptive interests. Creation just didn't come out of nowhere. Creation is the stage. It's only a stage. This world we live in is a stage. This planet, this little blue celestial ball that floats around the universe. Listen to me. All it is is an island earth is an island in the sea of eternity and on that island the plan of salvation and redemption has taken place creation serves redemption never forget that and Christ is the head of it and that he's also the head of God's new creation that is the church which he purchased at Calvary by his blood and was raised To a new creation status by his resurrection. He's the firstborn from the dead. That's his new creation status by his resurrection. And now a subsequent spiritual resurrection when we're born again. 
which for the Colossians' concerns, and ours today, as in all of Christian history, is this. To sum it all up, salvation is full and free and found in Christ. Period. This is the cosmic reconciliation of Jesus. It's hard to fathom the depth of what God has done, what he's doing, what he continues to do, what he's going to finish at the consummation when Christ comes back, is beyond a full comprehension. But we know there's a plan. It's in place. Christ is the king. Christ is the head of it. Nothing can separate us from Christ. This is the hope of glory. Christ in us. Our text tonight goes to show that this little church, this little church of believers called the Colossians, understand something. If you get a picture, it's probably not much bigger than our church. Maybe twice the size, but it wasn't a thousand people. There wasn't many converts. It was a small church. It could have looked insignificant. Maybe they thought they were insignificant. Maybe they had no idea that they were going to receive this letter personally to them, the Colossian church, and that's going to be sitting for 2,000 years of Christian history where me and you are going to study it and understand just how awesome salvation is, how awesome and incredible Christ is, and how wonderful it is to be born again and to never forget the beauty of being saved and being redeemed by the precious blood of Christ, of being filled with the Holy Spirit, of having hope and having peace and justification with God, that we never lose sight and never get too familiar that the God of the universe is now our Father. Never ever to get so familiar with that that it means nothing to us anymore. As though, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. Like I've heard, like, it's like, whoa, say that again. I'm going to close my eyes. I want, I want to hear the tone you're telling me that you're a Christian in. Are you telling me, yeah, well, no, I got nothing better to do, so I'm a Christian. Or are you telling me, praise God, I'm a Christian. Amen. My prayer, and I know the prayer of this church is God puts the praise God back into your Christianity. That's what Paul wants to do here. Because something's coming against this church to steal the praise God, to steal the song, to steal the song of redemption that God had put into this little church's life. And he goes to show this church of believers, which is part of Christ's body. And is now reconciled to God and in spite of its past sins. Hence, you were once what? You were once what? You were? Did I get that right? I hope so. You were once what? I'll fix that later. Okay. <laughs> in spite of its past sins, no matter how bad they were, they are now saved. They are now reconciled no matter what. These verses speak of the past. The present and a future. And they need to be addressed that way in our sermon tonight. We need to remember several things before we interpret these verses. There were a young church. It's important for us to know. Young church, young believers are susceptible to misleading teaching. And that's what's going on in this church. There's a misleading teaching that gets Paul to write what he is writing. And this teaching started to harass them so much that the pastor of the church, a man named Epaphras, had to travel 1,100 miles, basically all on foot, to go see Paul at Rome. 1,100 miles. This was no minor development in this church. The church was under attack. And this man is going, taking it upon himself to go see the Apostle Paul and to see his input. To set the record straight. Young church. Susceptible. To misleading teaching. All young believers are susceptible. Without even knowing it. To misleading teaching. Two. We have to remember they were founded as we spoke about last week by Epaphras. But Epaphras was mainly a gifted evangelist. He was an organizer, he administrator, he got things going, he, he was a good pastor, he loved this church, he prayed for this church, he, he was concerned for this church, and we could tell because he went 1,100 miles basically on foot to go see the Paul on the other side of the Mediterranean world to bring word to him that we need help. That's a labor of love. 
That's a labor of concern. He's concerned for them. He's concerned for the glory of God. He's a, he's a gifted evangelist. And he has the enthusiasm. But he, he could lack, it, it seems, lack the depth of theological thought that Paul had and that this church needed to meet the harassing teaching that was becoming a threat to this church. Have you ever heard the expression, some churches are a mile wide, but an inch deep? A lot going on, a lot of activity, but when it comes to genuine depth of understanding and spiritual discernment, they're an inch deep. I'm not saying that this church was, but it definitely lacked the theological power and insight into the person and work of Christ and being perfect in Christ. Their standing of being justified in the eyes of God perfectly. Their past sins are not counted against them and their present failures don't separate them. You might think, oh, I've heard that before. You might not have heard it the way Paul's teaching it. We'll go through it. Spiritual discernment is a gift that needs to grow in historical, biblical Christianity. Spiritual discernment is not something we're born again with. It's not something we come out of the spiritual womb and we figure these things out. No, it's based on the study and the understanding of biblical Christianity, of understanding the gospel message, and understanding its fullness and its completeness, and everything points to Christ, so that we do not get deceived and get dismayed and, and get harassed. It, is, it, it takes time. It takes time. History and experience teaches us this. That's the only way we can truly and genuinely recognize the schemes of Satan. Do you know that Satan never sleeps also? We know God doesn't sleep and he doesn't slumber. We think Satan kicks back. You think he's chilling with a corona on the beach? Leave it up to some of the lesser demons to harass us. Satan is fully on the attack against the Christian church constantly. And his mode of operation isn't just immorality. That's okay. Those are the deeds of the flesh. It is misleading, misguiding, heresy, and teaching. The doctrines of demons and seducing spirits, Paul says to Timothy. That is his mode of operation. That's his, that's his number one arsenal. Mislead the mind. That's right. Did God say... He's always questioning the word of God. He's always getting people to try to question the word of God. So we take this text very serious. And and in today's church, we believe this is greatly undervalued. Greatly undervalued. That we need to be spiritually discerning. Let's go to our text. We'll start in verse 21. Give you a moment. Verse 21. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. The apostle starts by reminding them of their past life before conversion. This is important. It's not for the sake of guilt, but for the sake of encouragement. It's reminding them of the gospel. The gospel is a once or, and now I know the mistake on my, uh, mm-hmm. uh, my title. That was from the New American Standard Bible. I like to read that at home. The ESV has it a little different. But the New American Standard says, and you once were alienated. And the point is that Paul is pointing back so he can show them just how full and free salvation is and that they're being harassed by a teaching that says you're really not that full, you're really not that free. Jesus is just another lesser God. He needs to be appeased like all the other thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities. you got to go through all these people to get to the divine light, to get to the knowledge of God, to understand who God is. Jesus is just part of the protocol. He's part of the process. Jesus Christ who died for their sins, who shed his blood on the cross to redeem them and reconcile them to God, is now getting second place in this church. It's under attack. And with that comes guilt and shame that sin naturally gives. There's only one cure and remedy for guilt and shame, and that's the blood of Christ. You can try to work all you want, and it's not going to remove guilt and shame. You'll be self-deceived if you think you are. But it's for the sake of not guilt, but sake for the encouragement. 
once more is a past tense period, never to be repeated again, and goes to establish once and for all that salvation is an historical event and happens in a person's life in this world. Has nothing to do with the next world. The fullness of our salvation is in the next world. But salvation is encountered here and now. We encountered the risen, crucified Christ here and now in our hearts through the gospel message when we hear that we need a savior, that we're sin, that we alienated from God, that our life is filled with a wicked mind and evil deeds and we hear the generous grace offering of God for our salvation and we embrace Christ that salvation, it's here and it's now, as Jesus says, those who believe in me have passed from what? death to life Death to life. It's, it's full and it's free now you and I know that, right? You know how many people are meeting in Orthodox churches and mainstream churches today that will go to church for 40, 50, and 60 years and will never hear what they just heard today? Do you know there's people that fight the doctrine of grace? Do you know that there's people that don't want anybody to think that salvation is full and free because you'll do what? The party's on! But they're missing the whole point. The power to a transformed life is intrinsic in the gospel message. When a genuine sinner genuinely hears the genuine message and is genuinely converted and receives the genuine Holy Spirit, you don't want to sin anymore. It doesn't taste good anymore. It hurts. It's remorseful. It aches the soul. It's painful. It gives you sleepless nights. Every Christian has to go through it. Every Christian has to think, well, maybe I can get away with something. You know, we don't get away with nothing. And we don't have to run around throwing cold water on everybody. Well, you know, they're going, listen, if they're Christians, they're going to come back and they're going to tell me how much it hurt. Am I right? I don't have to run around seeing what everybody's doing. You preach the truth. You live the truth. You encourage the truth. You warn genuine believers that God disciplines all those he loves. The power to change and transform is in the message. It's in the heart of the believer. You don't have to threaten people. It's over. Salvation is full and free. It's an historical event. We've passed from life to death. Today, as back then, it can take a believer some time to bask in this truth. And to really learn how to rest in Christ. There's a brother, he's part of this church, a great brother. And, and he would come on Mondays and he'd sit there like this. And he'd hear the gospel message and week in and week out saying, but what do I have to do? Every week, but what do I have? I have to do something. And I said, just trust in Christ. They asked him to forgive you. Repent that you've sinned and that you are a sinner by nature and that you need him in your life. And it took him quite a while, but then the light went off and he understands that salvation is full and free. And he too is a member of his church and he loves the Lord for many, many, many years now. But there's part of us that says, no, it can't be. There's got to be something we can do. It takes a long time. Even mature believers seem to learn the deeper levels of this reality. And understand that this is why teaching about the cross and teaching about salvation, if we did it for a thousand lifetimes, could never get old because of the depth of our sinful, wicked, self-righteous hearts. That I need to hear a fresh teaching of the gospel every day of my life. Jesus calls it daily bread. Spiritual daily bread is to be reminded that I need the Savior to wash my feet, even though my soul has been cleansed. My feet daily get dirty. As Spurgeon says, I'm daily reminded every day that no good thing dwells in me. What an honest confession of a man's need for grace. Sin, failure, weakness, fears do not define them or us anymore. Grace does. And that's what Paul is saying. You once were sin, hedonism, licentious living, paganism, a pantheon of gods. Do not define who you are anymore. You've been washed and you've been cleansed and you've been brought by Christ 
Period. Don't let that teacher who's harassing you with the heretical teaching that you need to appease God through fastings, through washings, through circumcision, through Sabbath, through religious gymnastics to please him. You don't have to do that. Jesus has fully and perfectly reconciled you to the Father now and forever. Now and forever. You once were. Period. There comes a time in a Christian's life, a young Christian's life. I'm going to be perfectly honest with myself. When I got saved, never struggled with it. I remember giving my life to Christ. I walked out of the church I got saved in. There was three things that I remember as clearly as today as I did then. It's part of who I am as a Christian. I remember Jesus Christ is God. I remember my sins are forgiven. And the Bible is the word of God. I never questioned those three spiritual truths ever in my salvation. It's a work of grace. But a lot of Christians struggle. Some Christians can struggle with a sensitive conscience, whatever it is. And you need to grow in that. But there comes a time in every Christian's life, and this is a pastor's desire. You'll see this in chapter 2 of this book. All right, To know you're complete in Christ is nothing like... It's music to my ears. It's music to John's ears when someone says this. I know I am forgiven. Period. No doubts. No hesitation. Not vacillating in the valley of indecision. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, Brian, my sins are forgiven forever. And I sit back and I say, praise God. Praise God. He goes on to say that you are, you are also alienated. When you were alienated, it means separate from God in any kind of real personal relationship. It's important, I'll explain that, because the ancient world was filled with religion, just like it is today. As a matter of fact, there's something today that the ancient world didn't have. It's called atheism and agnosticism. There were no non-believers 2,000 years ago. Everybody believed in 10 gods, 20 gods, the more the merrier. You know what was odd 2,000 years ago? To believe in one God. As a matter of fact, Christians were known as atheists. Because they only believed in what? One God. The ancient world found that strange. They said, you don't believe in gods. You believe in a God. What are you, crazy? They were alienated, means separate from God in any real personally. Uh, this was not just a reminder of their personal status as non-Jews. And the, the New Testament clearly talks about the pagans being alienated from God because they weren't part of the covenant of Israel. They were alienated from God. They were in the world without God and without hope, Ephesians chapter 2 says. There was no message of reconciliation to them. They had a pantheon of religions. They weren't agnostic. They weren't atheists. But they weren't worshippers of the one true and living God. And when you're not a worshipper of the one true and living God, then understand something. You're alienated from God. There's only one way. You can say God all day long. You can bow down to ten gods and twenty gods. But if he's not Christ, then it's no God at all. God is still invisible. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. To get to the invisible God, you've got to go to the revelation of the Son of God. And if you don't go to the revelation of the Son of God, God will always be invisible, not just to the eye, but to the mind and to the understanding. And that religious practices of any kind still leaves a person alienated, hopeless, helpless, and powerless. And the scriptures are clear why mankind are alienated. The seed of alienation is the mind. As Paul says there, the hostile in mind. Heart is often spoken about in the same context. Sometimes it's they're synonymous. The heart and the mind is the seed of the emotions, of the will, of desires and passions and emotions. That's the seed of the mind. That's the seed of the heart. It makes us tick as human beings. It brings animation to us. It separates us from animals who don't have a soul, who can't commune with God. 
are created in his image. Hostile in mind is purely a biblical revelation, and the modern man could never conceive of such a concept. That's insulting today to tell somebody that you're hostile. Hey, how you doing? Do you know you're hostile in mind to God? That's insulting. Mankind doesn't know that God has jurisdiction over the thought life. That's what the deeds follow. Evil deeds follow out of a hostile mind. If the root of the tree is bad, Jesus says, what else will be bad? The fruit. If the root of the tree is good, the fruit will be good. If the mind is hostile to God, the deeds will be Praise the Lord. What a following congregation. Thinking through the faith. I see the light bulbs going on all over the place over here. Modern man can never conceive of such a concept. They can believe in evil deeds. They can believe in evil uh, words and actions. But thoughts, emotions, and passions, evil and contrary to God. Instead of man's mind being consumed, let's go back to the the original prototype. Adam's mind was consumed with a love for God and for his neighbor. At that time was his wife. With wholesome intentions and passions for God and for one another. A spirit of unity and harmony filled their hearts. Unfortunately, because of the fall and sin, the human mind has become a cesspool of selfish, sinful passions and desires and cravings that are contrary to God's nature and even contrary to us being created in his image. Listen to how Paul says it in chapter 3 of this very book. Starting in verse 5, he says this, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked, Colossians, when you were living in them, when you were pagans, when you were alienated and weren't reconciled, though you had many gods in a pantheon of gods, you, were, you used to live in these things. You, you went to the temple, but when you left, you still lived in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old man when you confess Christ. What is practices? A little paraphrase. Paul just listed ten vices, of which only one, Don't miss this. Only one of those ten has a physical activity that's sexual immorality. Impurity can mean both. But it usually is sensuality of the mind. Uncleanness of the soul and the mind. All other nine deal with the thought life, the emotion life, passion life, and the intentions of the heart. Remember, these were spiritual people. They had a pantheon of religions, pantheon of gods. But Paul just nails it right there that their alienation, before he even gets to the deeds, says, You're hostile in the mind. That's the problem. The root of the soul is evil. Let me give you an example of this. I use this gentleman more and more. He never ceases to amaze me. I've got a friend of mine in the gym. And I talked to him the other day, and I said, you know, how it's going to start, you know, I said, what are you doing? You're going to go out tonight, you know, your girlfriend, have a glass of wine or something. He goes, up. Oh. I gave up drinking for Lent. He goes, you don't believe in Lent? This is the same guy that called me out a month ago on Ashes, all right? The same guy. 
I said, well, I've got nothing wrong with Lent. It's not biblical, but if you're doing something genuinely for the Lord because you died for your sins and you love them, then, you know, I'm not going to get in the way with that. He goes, why, you don't give anything up? I said, well, basically, I gave up sinning. <laughs> I said, I, I gave up drunkenness and fornicating and, and lewdness and coarse joking and womanizing and lust and greed. I repented of all these things and because I loved the Lord. He goes, hey, hey, don't get too crazy on me now. You're way out there now. You're one of those kind of guys. <laughs> but that's what we got in front of us. Yes. Hostile in mind. Filled with religion. Yes. But he's still what? Hostile. Hostile in mind. And I'm sitting there and I'm thinking about the sermon. And I'm looking. I love the guy. And I'm going, praise God. Praise God. Right before me. Right before me. Religious but still hostile in mind. Doing evil deeds. The scriptures teach us that this is not so much out of ignorance as it is out of a purposeful intention of the human mind to live on its own, under its own rules, governed by its own passions and desires, lust and wants, and not by God's spirit, his word, or his reality. Alienated and hostile in mind. Dressed up in religious jargon. Dressed up in sophistication. Dressed up like everything's okay, but at the end of the day, it is not. Paul calls it what it is. Doing evil Deeds. Paul was no mind reader, just a great observer of human nature, with all its outward manifestations of its inward ugliness, just like Jesus was. If the root, how can you tell the root of a tree is bad? Taste the fruit. That's all. Paul was no mind reader. Whether words or actions or deeds, they are contrary to the life in God's world. And it's important how Paul puts this all together because these are evil because they aren't meant, these deeds, these thoughts aren't meant to enhance love. They're not meant to enhance unity. They're not meant to enhance harmony in this world, which Jesus just did by reconciling us through his shed blood. Are you with me? There's a a contrast. Hostile deeds, alienated, uh, 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 hostile in mind, evil deeds, alienated. And Jesus, the one who takes his, by his blood, he takes our sin on the cross to bring harmony, to bring unity, to bring reconciliation. All Christ's deeds brought peace. All ours bring disaster. Disaster. Instead of reconciliation, all these desires of the flesh, these hostile in mind that we just read, these ten vices, ten, nine of which are inward in the mind, in the passions, in the emotions, instead of increasing harmony, they give disharmony and continued alienation. Sin always separates, not just a man from God, but man from period. Evil deeds coming from a hostile mind. Slander, malice, coarse joking, gossip, anger, fits of rage, unforgiveness. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be the judge and the jury over this one. I'm gonna hold back the right to forgive another human being. I'm God in this relationship. Evil deeds. He goes on to tell him in verse 22, he has now reconciled you in the body of his flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Verse 22 brings things up to the present for these believers. We just lived in the past. He he explained the past, but now it's it's what they are now. They're reconciled. It's the present for these believers and us. In spite what they were by nature alienated, in spite what they were by nature hostile in mind, in spite what they were by engaged in evil deeds, Jesus Christ forgave them and adopted them as sons and daughters of Almighty God. 
Tell me, is that a message you get so familiar with that you can't hear it again and again and again? They are now co-heirs with Christ. The past is over. The new has begun. You don't get someone to change by telling them you have to change. You get someone to change by telling them what Jesus has done for them. You point to the past. I can tell you now, you're struggling with sin. You're a Christian. You want to change? Don't try to change. Go back to the cross where you met Christ originally. And bring your sin to him. And fall in love with Christ. And out of love with sin. That's the difference. Fall in love with Christ and out of love with sin. You'll change. They are now co-heirs with Christ as adopted sons and daughters by grace. Now they are what they were meant to be all along, just like you and I are. We're new creation. Reconciliation means friendship with God. Christianity is friendship with the invisible God through Jesus Christ, the full manifestation of this invisible God. This is sometimes lost. This is really, really sometimes lost. And we run up, we manage our whole Christian life and our whole Christian relationship with God as a do and don't thing. And, and sometimes it's tips to the do is good, and sometimes we're tipping to the scales of the bad is good, and we're running in between, and we're not sitting down at the cross where reconciliation was brought by the blood and enjoying our reconciliation with God and spending quality father, son, quality daughter time with God because if you did understand, you'd walk in the power of the Spirit of God. And we're trying to manage it all the time, trying to sin less, trying to do Bible study more, trying to read more, trying to pray more. I'm trying to pull myself up by double efforts. Instead of just sitting back and saying, no, once I was, I'm not that anymore. I'm a new creation in Christ. And we go back to the cross. And we go back to the cross and we preach the gospel to ourselves. That's what Paul is doing in these three verses. He's going to make it plain, sure, that the only cure to their ills is the finished work of Christ of which they already believed in. Don't try to please God by this strange teaching. This teaching that says you got to do this, do that, and do the other thing. you got to do spiritual gymnastics. you got to become more religious. And he did this in the body of his flesh. It's a loaded phrase. There were no other means of reconciliation between the invisible, holy, righteous, and just God and sinful humanity. But the body of Christ, the physical, listen, when he says the body of Jesus in the body of his flesh, it doesn't mean that just this physical body. Don't think it was just, just the skull. It's representative of his whole life, his every thought, his every intention, his every motive. His only reason for living was to please God. And he took 33 years of only pleasing God, never for one moment alienated from God. He went to the cross and was separated for us. He was alienated so we can be what? Reconciled. There was nothing intrinsic in the blood like the Jehovah Witnesses teach. Like it's it's in the blood, there's something in there's nothing in the blood. The blood represents his sinless, pure, undefiled mind and heart and soul before God, his sinlessness, which he offered up on our behalf. Voluntarily. This brings don't meet this. He gave up as a sin offering to God on their behalf. So no longer, so no other offering is ever necessary again. Not the Sabbath, not circumcision, not, not fastings, not new moons, not, not nothing. Nothing can please God but, but the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the only God pleased himself in Christ. 
He points them back to the cross. For that's where the power to save and the power to transform is found. And what's the aim of all this? So we can just go on sinning? That grace may increase? So I can be not affected by the message of the cross? So I can just come to church and hang out and go home? No, it's, it's so that he can present us holy and blameless above reproach. This is the whole aim of Christ's cross work. To remove all their guilt, all our guilt, and to bring them and us before God as a cleansed people, a holy nation, a bride for Christ. And it has two purposes. One is future. It's judicial. When all believers stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And we hear these words. Welcome into my joy, which I prepared for the foundations of the world. Come, you who have been reconciled. Uncondemned. Is there plenty to condemn us? Plenty. All washed by the blood of Christ. Every stain. Pardoned. Also, it has a sanctifying power right now. It's also, and also to be in the process of that change right now in our sanctification. Christ living out his life in us. It's progressive. A new heart and a renewing of our mind. It's progressive sanctification. It's practical sanctification. It's practical justification. Judicial justification in the eyes of God. You are forgiven forever. In practical justification, we're working that out. It's becoming a more and a more of a reality in our life. The more Christ grows in me, the less I sin. And maybe the best, beyond reproach. The NIV says, free from all accusation. It's beautiful. What Paul is saying here is beautiful and has a dual purpose to it. As we spoke about last week, the false teacher was saying, you know, to get to God, you have to go through the, the, the three, four, five, six, seven different levels of heaven where the rulers and dominions and authorities are. And to get to, get to God, you've got to appease them. You, they're, they're going to accuse you. They've got, they got power over your life now and your life later. So you've got to placate them. You've got to appease them by religious practicing and offering. So to get their attention and to show them that you really love God. And, and if you do that, they'll let you come close. Whether a demon or Satan himself were to stand before God and point out all our many failures and sins, there is no accusation against us. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? If God is for us, who can be against us? It's Christ Jesus who sets us free. This is important to know, and this is why. Young believers like this young church who are not established in a full and perfect understanding of Christ will make, a genuine believer will make one or two mistakes. They'll be so filled and racked with guilt and shame, they'll try to please God through anything just to please Him. That's, that's one extreme. The other extreme, if they don't understand, they'll live in weakness all their life, and their life will be characterized by sin. Just sin. Sin and repentance, sin and repentance, sin and repentance, sin and repentance. Same sins over 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, it's over. Because they're not established. They're not established in the doctrine of the transforming grace of Jesus Christ. It's a mental ascent. They know it's out there. They know the scripture says I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But it never becomes a reality in their life. Because they're a mile wide. And they are an inch deep. Period. No depth of understanding. Of the power of the resurrection. I think about this. And I remember a man speaking to me and Terry. Living in sin with his girlfriend. 
but he was so uh, he was overwhelmed by the religiosity of his girlfriend. They went to the Vatican. And while she was at the Vatican, she had to get on her knees and, and she walked up the Vatican on her knees. Many steps. I've been there and I saw people doing this. And they were trying to please God. They were, they were trying to do something for God. And they were showing how much they love God. And they, but they're living in sin. Filled with religion. And he was so impressed by this knee crawling at the Vatican. This is what a guilty conscience will do. It'll drive you to walking upstairs on your knees to try to find forgiveness. It's on the cross. Full and free. Period. It's not in penance. It's not in Mary. It's not in act of contritions. It's not in ten our fathers. It's found that Christ once and for all, full and free. Period. Amen. It's over. It's over. The madness is over. The religious madness is over. Thank you, Jesus. Two thousand years later, and people still don't know it. And we come in here, we got our songs, we got joy in our heart, and we don't realize how privileged we are as born-again believers today. And he goes on to say this. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel, everybody say hope of the gospel. That you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This verse deals with their future. The first one dealt with their past. 22 dealt with their present. This verse deals with their future. If you continue in the faith, it sounds like a loss of salvation and eternal security. That is not what Paul is addressing here. This has nothing to do with eternal security. Though we believe in eternal security. This was written to meet the immediate threat that was so real in this church of going back into a works righteousness. Don't go backwards. God saved you from that. He rescued you from that. Don't, there's no need to go backwards. He accepts you. You're reconciled. You're full and free. Don't go backwards. Because if you do, you're going to mess everything up. And eventually, if not this generation, the next will lead to abandoning the gospel. Hope. Was anybody's heart filled with hope as we worshipped in song today? Amen. Was I the only one that was touched deeply? Nope. That doesn't come by works. That comes by grace. Praise the Lord. If you're working for salvation, that woman on her knees, I can tell you right now, there's no hope there. Because you're looking inward to yourself and not outward to the cross. The hope of the gospel. That's the gospel. That's our hope. That's our praise. That's our power. That's our change. That's what does it. Calls Paul to perseverance is a natural apostolic pastoral reflex to encroaching heresy. That's all it is. It's a natural reflex. It's like someone saying, no, but you've got to work. And so, what? What did I hear? Work? Work what? Work? You mean the blood on the cross? That work, right? That, that's the work. Mainstream religion is filled with works. Greek orthodoxy, Roman Catholicism. It's so unfortunate. They're right there. They're right there. They're at the door. They believe in the virgin birth. They believe in the deity of Christ. They believe in the crucifixion. They believe in the resurrection. They believe in his coming again. But they don't have hope in the gospel. They've mixed it with works. And that's what Paul is saying. Don't get caught up in it. Because one day the gospel will be gone and works will be in. And you'll separate and alien yourself from any hope in God. There'll be no song in your heart. There'll be no joy. There'll be no religious fervor. This is not about fighting with ongoing sin and guilt. Please understand this. 
When Paul says, continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel, he's not talking about the ongoing sin we fight with and work through. It's not about that. But it's about trying to alleviate both by other means than God's prescription. And that's the hope of the gospel. Don't go backwards. Don't believe in anything else but Christ. I gave a pastoral paraphrase. It goes like this. Hey, brother, God doesn't want you to jump through hoops to, in order to please him. Jesus paid it all. Amen. Continue to keep your eyes of faith on him, for you know he cares for you. That's what Paul is saying. Don't lose that. Keep your eyes on Christ. When it comes to application, unfortunately, religion is mean and it's thriving amongst humanity. Human beings think they can do something secret in their heart to get right with God. It's the depth of self-righteous sin. And we need to be careful of it because many people in this room are saved from it, myself included. Let's be sensitive to people. And the last thing I want to talk about, and we'll close, the Christian never outgrows this you once were reality. Someone told me and John, you know, you preach too much of the cross. Could you imagine that? <laughs> they don't come to this church no more, you know why? We preach too much of the cross. What else is there? <laughs> what else? What, what am I going to do? You want to hear my opinion about life? You want to hear my, com- my, my commentary on contemporary issues? You want to hear about my thoughts about the president or ISIS? You, want, you, want me to, you don't want to hear that. You want to hear about the cross. You want to hear about Christ, who's supreme over everything. Amen. As we spoke about, that's what you want to hear. This you once were reality, we never outgrow it. As a matter of fact, we don't outgrow it. You can't outrun it. You, you, you need it every day in your life because the longer we remain Christians, the more we realize we need it. The more we realize how deep-rooted sin is in our heart. And I can go on and on and on. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. God, we just thank you for the liberating power of the gospel message as fresh and real and free today as it was when Christ hung his head on the cross and said, it's finished. It is finished. It'll be finished. It is always going to be finished, whether then, now, or forever. Finished. And we thank you, O God, that we live in the finished work of the cross. I pray for my brothers and sisters here today, God, that they get a fresh perspective on the finished work of Christ in Jesus' name.